Nicole Pitches and you are listening to the Reasonable Woman podcast, a legal podcast for all of my fellow legal nerds out there. I must apologise for the noise that you can probably hear in the background. I'm in a different room than one I would normally be in and the wind is howling out there. Um, I hope all of you and your loved ones are keeping safe out there as well. These are troubling times for us all, but this too shall pass. And on the bright side, with all this extra time that I seem to have, uh, for once I do not need to apologise for the lack of uploading. Uh, after having taken some advice from a friend of mine and after my own realisation how writing multiple pages of script is not, let's say, ideal for this podcast, this should be a nice, quick and cute chunk of EU information. Today we are going to be addressing the different types of EU legal acts. The reason being is that I know not all of you are law students or legal professionals, so I wanted to make sure that we were all on the same page before being able to discuss about any regulations or directives further. Sources for today include the book European Union Law by Barnard and Piers, EU Law by Steiner and Woods, and the treaties themselves, of course. As always, you can find all of the sources in the description box. Just before we begin, I'd also like to remind you all that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature and is provided for solely educational purposes. Any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk. So, let's crack on. As we know, The EU is not a state, but it exercises the powers that states normally would, through various institutions and decision-making procedures. These institutions act with a pretty wide degree of autonomy, as well as being given extensive competences to make those decisions by the member states themselves. The exercise of these competences are, however, kept in check through various constraints, and of course we have the Court of Justice to keep an eye on things as well, should a particular decision need to go through judicial review. As we've discovered extensively in all of the previous episodes, the EU is based on the rule of law, quote, which means that every action taken by the EU is founded on treaties that have been approved democratically by its members. It is the EU's legal acts that help to achieve the objectives of the treaties and put policies into practice. There are five types of legal acts, regulations, directives, decisions, recommendations and opinions. We obviously have EU treaties, but I'm pretty sure you all know what they do by now. They lay down EU objectives, institutional rules, define how decisions are made, and define the relationship between the EU and its member states. Every treaty is negotiated and agreed by all EU member states, and ratified by their respective parliaments. So we'll start off with the regulations. According to the TFEU Article 288, A regulation shall have general application and it shall be binding in its entirety and directly applicable in all member states. Direct applicability, or the direct effect principle, is a fundamental principle of EU law, established in the case of Van Genden Loos in 1963. For the purpose of this episode, all you need to know is that it's, quote, in effect the equivalent of a statute or law in a national legal order. What this means is that they apply automatically and uniformly to every member state as soon as the regulation enters into force, without the need of having to adopt it international law. Next we've got directives. The same article of the TFEU, Article 288, states that a directive shall be binding as to the result to be achieved upon each member state to which it is addressed, but shall leave to the national authorities the choice of form and methods. Bradley, in the EU Law Book, Chapter 5, explains directives as a form of framework law, which I think is a rather apt description of it. So the EU sets out policy objectives within the directive, but it gives member states to which it is addressed to the freedom to choose how they will implement these objectives. This means that the policy is applied to member states through their own national laws. 
Bradley also points out that directives reflect the principle of subsidiarity, another principle we touched upon before in the Maastricht Treaty episode. However, note that this freedom is not necessarily so extensive. Directives can also be quite restrictive, by, for example, regulating an area in such great detail that member states end up having little room for discretion. Some like to argue that this is just an example of EU power grabbing, but it's more likely that they do this because member states, while agreeing to do something on paper, often end up not actually delivering their promise, so the EU conjures up something to hold them to their promise. Moving on to decisions, which I don't really need to explain a whole lot, um, the article states, a decision shall be binding in its entirety. A decision which specifies those to whom it is addressed shall be binding only on them. Decisions can be directed at both member states and individuals. Recommendations and opinions. Now, the TFEU lumps these guys together a bit by saying that recommendations and opinions shall have no binding force. They are pretty self-explanatory. The EU will recommend policies and objectives in an effort for the member states to all cooperate in moving into a similar direction, and the same thing applies to the opinion. There are, however, some exceptions. With regulations, it may be that in some specific areas, for example, the economic and monetary policy, if a member state, say, is really not cooperating well and failing in enforcing some of the policy objectives, then the council will approach said member state with a recommendation and if the member state still does not improve then the council may have to adopt some other measure so essentially even broad guidelines may have quote some legal effects in that non-compliance provides the basis for a commission warning followed by council recommendations opinions on the other hand while also non-binding in nature have a specific procedure which is to be respected so for example if an institution has been asked to give an opinion about another legal act the adopting institution must therefore wait patiently for the opinion before making any decisions. So while opinions are not necessary, if it has been provided, it may be pretty influential to the extent that a negative opinion may end up forcing renegotiation or abandoning the agreement altogether. In terms of other legal acts, it may be useful to know that sometimes inter-institutional agreements can be used to supplement a treaty provision, and that, quote, certain delicate political questions can be better resolved by the application of an agreement between the main players rather than intervention by the judicial authority. This is evidenced in the case of Council v Parliament uh, or the 1986 budget case. That's pretty much all there is to it. But before we go, I've got one more thing to add. The idea of primary and secondary law. All of these legal acts are in a hierarchy. At the very top, we've got the treaties. The Charter of Fundamental Rights, which, as you know already, was given the same legal value as the treaties, as stated in Article 296 of the TFEU, and the fundamental principles of EU law. All of these is what you would call primary law. Everything else, like regulations, directives, decisions, is secondary law. So everything based on the treaties, which can also include international agreements, conventions, and institutional agreements, is secondary law. Also, I'll try to explain this as simply as possible. Um, note that given the nature of regulations, because they are directly effective, immediately these legal acts are stronger in nature rather than, say, an opinion which is totally not legally binding. So regulations are the strongest, then come directives, and then afterwards you've got decisions, recommendations and opinions. And there you have it. I'm so glad I managed to get this under 10 minutes. And next time we are going to be going through the subsidiarity principle in a bit more detail, as it is quite a fundamental principle. I'll hopefully be able to keep it as short and sweet as this one as well. As always, thank you so much for listening. 
please feel free to shoot me an email should you have any particular topic you want to hear more about at the reasonable podcast at gmail.com until next time bye